It's such a pleasure to be here. And, you know, Allison and I love Harry and Mary, and we get so few opportunities to be with them. And then to have once in a 40-year opportunity to be with them and David and Karen Green at the same time at the same table, 40 years since we've done that, has been a feast beyond belief. So we old people stayed up till 9.45 last night. <laughs> I mean, we were beyond bedtime and you know, having just a grand old time talking about these things. And we have a lot more yet to uncover about the, the past because there's a lot of water uh, over the dam uh, since the last time that we visited. But it's such a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for your warm hospitality that Allison and I have already experienced. And uh, we have a treat together because we're looking at the word, but especially the word as it has to do with the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples, to make disciples of all nations, to go into all the world, to go everywhere, to proclaim and to demonstrate Christ. So we want to be looking at that carefully together in these four sessions together this morning, uh, tonight, and the next two nights after that. This morning, we're going to look at uh, a text from the Apostle Paul. You can turn to Galatians chapter 6. And let me just say about this text that it's known to be Paul's earliest letter of all 13 letters that he uh, wrote that are in the New Testament. Uh, We're not absolutely sure of that, but it certainly seems that way. And if you know anything about Galatians, you know that Paul, as a passionate man anyway, is very passionate here uh, in this text. And the passion is because there are some that are threatening the very core of the gospel. There are some Judaizers who've come down from Jerusalem into Galatia who are teaching the Galatian new Christians that, yes, you have to receive Jesus as your Savior, but you also have to keep the Jewish rituals. Paul is incensed, he's apoplectic in opposing this false teaching because if you add anything to the righteousness of Christ for your justification, you diminish your justification. In fact, you can ruin it. You can, you can be shipwrecked in your faith. So you'll never see Paul more passionate here. Now, why is this important for us? Here's why. We have an enormous challenge in reaching the lost people around the world and reaching lost people right here in Midlothian. It's an enormous challenge. And uh, we need to know how we're going to do this. Now, the fact of the matter is, we have plenty of money to do it. We have plenty of intellectual firepower to get it done. We have plenty of strategies to do it. We have plenty of people to do it. But there's something missing. And what's missing is the heart. And so I want us especially to examine the heart of the Apostle Paul this morning, uh, the heart of the prophet Isaiah tonight, the heart of David, King David on Monday night, and the heart of the Lord Jesus on Tuesday night, because it is the heart that fuels the mission. When you get your heart right, when your relationship with Jesus is healthy, you become a natural or supernatural evangelist and witness because you're in love. And so we'll see how this works out in the apostles' life. Here in Midlothian, as I understand it, you have 59,000 people just in this uh, township. And statistics teach us that you probably, out of that 59,000, have 38,000 who are what we call unchurched. That means they do not go to church except on Christmas and Easter. 
So 38,000 people. Further studies have shown us that of that 38,000 people, there are 12,000 who will come to church if they're invited by someone they know and trust. 12,000 people right here in Midlothian. You could pack this place. You'd have to have services all day long just to deal with the people uh, who uh, are willing to say yes to an invitation to church. Now, the reason you don't ask them is because you get told no every once in a while, along with a few other words, and you remember those rejections, and you don't want that to happen again, and so you don't invite the people who would feel complimented to be asked to come and would come. But there are 12,000 people who are waiting to be asked. Furthermore, studies show us that of the 58,000, 59,000 in Midlothian, there are probably 4,000 people who, if you shared the gospel with them, would receive the gospel today. 4,000 people. And the reason they haven't received the gospel, they haven't been asked. The gospel has not been presented. Those are statistics that apply to every region in our country. We're in the South. Maybe folks are a little bit more open here, but it's true everywhere that folks are waiting to be asked, and there are thousands of them. But it's an enormous job, and what's the problem? It's our hearts. It really is at the bottom. So we want to look here at the heart of the Apostle Paul and what that heart has to teach us about our own hearts in relationship to Jesus Christ. Now the setting is then when we come to Galatians 6, beginning with verse 11, you'll remember that Paul here is summarizing his argument. The Judaizers want you to keep Jewish traditions, Paul says, because they want to boast about you that they've made you members of the club and that you're a legalist, a moralist, just like they are that you are adopting Jewish traditions just like they are. So they're proud themselves, and they want to be proud of you. They want to boast about you. And Paul in this text tells you why that's so egregious, because he's boasting about something else altogether. And we need to ask ourselves this morning if that's our boast. Let us pray together. We'll read and study the text. Father, we are deeply grateful for this portion of your word and pray that as we study together, before your face, that you will minister to our hearts, draw us nearer to your throne of grace, and conform us in closer likeness to the beauty and the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, praying in his name. Amen. Galatians 6, verses 11 through 14, hear the word of God. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. All flesh is grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. So the Apostle Paul tells us what his boast is, and I want us to look at verse 14 in particular and make some observations about that one verse. Would you look at it with me? The Apostle Paul says in verse 14, But far be it from me, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now here's the first thing I want you to notice. It is the word boast. And it is to say this. The first thing we want to observe 
is that the Christian life fundamentally is a life of boasting. It's a life of boasting about God. King David says it in Psalm 34. He says, come boast with me. I'm going to boast in the Lord. He said, let the humble hear and rejoice. And, he, and the sons of Korah say it again in Psalm 44. Psalm 96, you, you get declare unto the nations the glory of God. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name, and so on. Make His name known. Boast about Him. That's what the Christian life is. Let me give you an analogy. Uh, just eight days ago, one of our pastors on staff got married. The old man is 38. And so he finally got married to this wonderful woman, Catherine, that we just adore. And we know she's going to make him a far better man than he is, uh, although he's already a good man. But I'm so glad they got married last week, and I'll tell you why. I'm sick and tired of hearing about her. That's all he talks about. You know, the wedding's coming up. It's going to be, you know, June the 8th or whatever it was. And we're just hearing about her and hearing about the wedding for 6, 9, 12 months. I'm sick and tired of it. The man, and and you know what the problem was? He was in love. He couldn't stop talking about her. Everything about her. She's smart. She's beautiful. She's engaging. She's personable. Oh, yes, yes, I know. That's the way love is. That's the way it is when you're in love with Christ. It's the same thing. And what you see here with the apostle is he's picking up that notion out of the Old Testament that those who know their Lord really know him. They love to boast about him. They don't care what other people think. (laughs) They don't care whether you're sick and tired of it or not. I can't help myself. I'm in love. So you'll see from the very beginning that our worship is a boasting and our evangelism Our witness to the world is a boasting. They're connected. What you'll find is the churches that worship more enthusiastically are those that are more involved in witnessing to the outside world. Because the the fundamental activity is the same. You're boasting about someone you love, both in worship and in witness. So they're integrated. They're connected to one another. That's the essence of living out the Christian life. It's a boast. Now, secondly, look carefully at the text and see specifically what Paul says he boasts about. He says, far be it from me. May I never, he says, boast about anything, certainly not the symbols of my own righteousness like baptism or the fact that I'm a church member. By the way, let me tell you about your new church member, Linda. This woman makes a vicious carrot cake. And if you are on a diet like I am, you're hopelessly, you're going to be an addict by the time you have one bite. That's that's all I want to say about your new members. But whether you're bragging on your membership or your baptism or some other sign, perfect attendance in Sunday school, Paul says, I don't boast about any of that. May I never boast about anything that I've done or have become. I want to boast in one thing. Now look what he says. The cross Now we understand why someone would boast about God who created the heavens and the earth, who spoke and it came to be. Who does that but God? Of course we'd boast about God, but the cross? Anyone who's read 1st and 2nd century Roman writers on the cross know that the cross was so gruesome and ugly, uh, horrendous, that no one in polite company would even speak of it. It was just unspeakably gory. So why would the Apostle Paul says he's 
glorying, he's boasting in an ugly cross. Well, the very well-known expositor of the 20th century, John R. W. Stott, actually wrote a book on the cross, and he said that there are three reasons why we typically rejoice in the cross. The first one is this. The cross most vividly displays the character of God. And Stott goes on to explain what he means. He says, for example, if you want to know about the holiness of God, you can look in various places in the scriptures where his holiness broke out and terrified us. But he said, you'll never see a place where his holiness is more vividly displayed than on Calvary's cross. Because there you see God's stance towards sin. When Jesus Christ took on your sin, you can see the reaction of God. He slays his own son who's bearing your sin because of his holiness. His eyes, says Habakkuk, are too pure to look upon wrong. He cannot tolerate wickedness. So you see his holiness at the cross. What about his faithfulness? He made promises to his people that he would lose none of all that God has given him but raise them up at the last day. How shall that promise be fulfilled? How will he be faithful to that promise? It'll cost him his entire life on a cross. If you want to know about the faithfulness of God and how important his promises are to him, look at Calvary's cross and you'll see what lengths he goes to to maintain his promises, his faithfulness to his people. Great is thy faithfulness. If you want to know about his mercy and his grace, his love, where would you look but at Calvary's cross? Matthew Henry on this text, uh, in speaking about it, put it this way. Uh, He said, Come and see the victories of the cross. Christ's wounds are your healings. His agonies, your repose. His conflicts, your conquest. His groans, your songs. His pains, your ease. His shame, your glory. His death, your life. His sufferings, your salvation. Which leads to the second point that Stott makes. He says we glory in the cross... Because, in fact, that is where we're saved. We're redeemed at Calvary. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, you're redeemed by his blood, his sacrificial death. That's where you are saved. Your conscience is cleared at the cross. If you were in the Jewish economy, you experienced the sins being laid upon goats and lambs and bullocks, and that was important to symbolize what would come one day. But the sacrifice of animals, says the writer of Hebrews, could never cleanse your conscience. But the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, cleanses your conscience, liberates you from guilt and fear. Praise be to the Lord. I'll boast in the cross because there I'm redeemed, I'm ransomed, I'm liberated from the bondage of evil and from the devil and death itself. Thirdly, Stott says, not only is God's character most vividly revealed and our salvation accomplished there. But God also destroyed his enemies and our enemies there. He routed them. Paul says that he, in the cross, he put all of those principalities and powers to shame. You get that in Colossians chapter 2, where the cosmic evil powers were decimated at the cross. Now, it looked to the world as though our Christian claim that Jesus is the Messiah was destroyed at the cross. But what we learn from the apostle and other apostles uh, later on is that there, no, 
God's kingdom wasn't destroyed. Satan was destroyed at the cross. And that's the reason that he's so angry. He knows he's on a short leash and has a short time. And the end is coming because of Calvary's cross, which made him the victor over all the evil powers in the world. So these three great things cause us, of course, uh, when we are knowledgeable, that we boast in Calvary's cross. And Paul certainly does that as well. He says uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says that I chose to know nothing among you Corinthians except for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of that. He came with one message to a group of people who had never heard anything about the Messiah, never heard anything about substitutionary atonement. And he said, I proclaim to you one thing, and that was Christ crucified. So we see that clearly. Now, look more carefully at your text. We're back to Galatians 6.14. Notice that the Christian life is fundamentally a boasting, both in worship and witness. Secondly, it obviously is a boasting about the crux or the cross of the faith, and that is it's a boasting about Christ's cross. But notice what else the apostle goes on to say when he talks about the cross. He doesn't talk about the things that Stott mentions as the biblical reasons that we rejoice. Look what Paul says. In this text, Paul says, May I never rejoice or boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. Ladies and gentlemen, he's talking about the subjective effects of the cross. In most of our thinking, as in Stott's wonderful volume, we're talking about what the cross has done for us. It's the objective work of the cross outside of ourselves. But here the Apostle Paul is talking about the cross in us, what the cross does in us. It's the subjective effects of the cross. And the Apostle Paul says, I'll never boast about anything but the cross because here's what it has accomplished. And he mentions two subjective elements, two subjective effects of the cross. The first one is this. He says, the world has become crucified to me. Now, I want you to think for a moment about the Apostle Paul. Paul was obviously a very well-educated man. He was a student and a graduate of the University of Tarsus, where he learned classic philosophy, which he quotes often in his epistles. He then went on to Jerusalem as a Jewish man to get his Ph.D., as it were, in theology. So Paul knew the Bible frontwards and backwards. And he had, a, he had one of the most exquisite theological trainings available in the world in his day. We also can tell from observing the habits of the Apostle Paul and the people that he hung out with, Paul had what we would call today champagne tastes. He was a cultivated man with a colossal intellect. He knew the nuances of culture. He knew the finer things in life. And he knew how to enjoy them. And here the apostle is saying, I'm rejoicing in the cross, I'm boasting about it, because this world that has become so familiar to me, and which in my past I sought so much of, now it appears to me as a crucified criminal. This is what John Brown, the Scottish divine in the 19th century, said about this text. He says, what Paul is saying is that instead of looking at the world and being allured by it, which is our natural inclination, The Apostle Paul looks at the world and what he sees is ugliness equivalent 
to a crucified criminal hanging on a tree. He said, this is amazing. With my background and the kind of training and cultivation that I've had in my life, for me to look at the world and the bondage is broken, I'm fascinated. I'm astonished at this work of the cross. Do you know anything about this? Have you experienced this? Maybe not to the same level of maturity as the Apostle Paul, but has it begun in you? Where you can see the fruitlessness and the vanity and the futility of simply aspiring a promotion at work or a little bit higher salary or a little bit bigger house or a very nice vacation, all of of which we can enjoy as God's gifts to us. But have you begun to see the futility of seeking these things as the agenda of your life? The Apostle Paul sought all these things. And he says, I'm amazed at the cross. It's broken the bondage between me and the world. I see something else now. I I see the glory of God, and I see the new heavens and the new earth, and I see my eternal future. And it transcends the cheap and puny and petty things that so many of us spend our lives aspiring to obtain. And I speak to you young people. Have you thought about how you want to be trained in life, what you want to accomplish, where you're headed? There's something much bigger than what the world is encouraging you to consider all around you. And this will not make you less of a scholar. It will not make you less useful in the workplace. Oh, no, ladies and gentlemen, it'll make you far more useful and far happier and far more fruitful. Paul says, I'll never boast about anything but the cross. Baptism, church attendance, by itself does not transform a life. Let me tell you what transforms a life. Christ crucified in you. Take up the cross. So when Jesus was telling his disciples that he was going to face a cross, you remember, to their amazement, he said, you're going to face one too. Anyone who would follow after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So you see, actually, there are two crosses. There's the cross of Christ and there's your cross. And the only way in which you participate in the benefits of the cross of Christ is when you also take up the common obligations of taking up your cross with him. So he and Simon of Cyrene carried his cross. You carry your cross and you die. So the apostle says, this has happened in my life. It's broken the bondage between me and the allurements of the world around me. But keep reading your text. There's a second subjective element of the work of the cross that fascinates him. And he says, and I to the world. That, in other words, I've become crucified to the world. Now, uh, it looks as though I'm dealing with a congregation here who knows how to dress properly. You're very good looking, if I can put it that way. And you bear the marks of people who this morning stood in front of the mirror before you left your house. And the reason you stood in the mirror, you wanted your tie to be straight and your, the part in your hair to be right. If you're a man, if you're wearing a tie. If you're a woman, you want to be sure that everything was in place and so on. So you had the intent of coming into public to present yourself to the best of your ability. And we all, the rest of us, appreciate your efforts. Uh, no one here got in front of the mirror and said, I really want to look like a crucified criminal today. I want to look ugly. Well, Paul's not talking about the physical appearance. I'm sure that he did his best to make his bow-legged, bald-headed self look as good as he could. But, but Paul is saying, look, fundamentally, we normally strive for the world to give us their acclamation and approval. 
and promotions and to speak well of us. And most of us, by nature, spend our lives seeking to have that happen, even in the church if we're pastors. We seek to please people so often. It's a danger. It's a toxicity in our own blood. It comes by nature. Paul says, let me tell you about the power of the cross at Calvary, that if you take it up in your heart, you will no longer fundamentally be seeking the approval of the world. You'll be seeking the approval of God. And actually, you will take delight and boast in the fact that in the eyes of the world, you look like a crucified criminal, which is to look pretty ugly. It's not because you're a sadomasochist. It's because of this. Paul put it plainly elsewhere in Philippians chapter 3. He said, I want to know Christ and the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of sharing with him in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So the point is having intimacy with Christ. And the way that you do that is to share in his, the power of his resurrection, his spiritual power that he gives us. And to share in the brokenness and weakness and insults of the world. And Paul said, the cross has enabled me to experience this. And I know him because of it. This is the secret to the Christian life. And it's the secret to the Christian mission. When you and I take up the cross, then the world will see an illustration of the gospel at work. And they will hear an interpretive message called the gospel message which explains the lifestyle of those that are living this way with Christ in the church. This is what Paul is saying. This is the key to the Christian mission, is to have a boast, a grateful heart that boasts about nothing but Christ and who's taking up our cross. I'll close with this. An illustration of this would be the 19th century missionaries, James and Mary Fowler Calvert. They were Methodists in the UK, and for reasons I don't understand, the Lord seemed to put on James and Mary Fowler Calvert's hearts the urgency to go to the Fiji Islands all the way around the world. You know they're in the South Pacific, a place where the gospel had never been proclaimed in the mid-19th century. Furthermore, the, island, the Fiji Islands were full of cannibals in the mid-19th century. They eat people in case you don't know what a cannibal is. James and Mary Fowler are convicted this is where the Lord would want them to go. They get on an English sailing vessel, and you can imagine, that takes several months to get there. But before the English captain of that ship left, let them off in the Fiji Islands, he said to Reverend Calvert, he said, Sir, you know that you're going to die if you get off the ship. And James Calvert's famous response was, Sir, we died before we came. This is what empowers the Christian mission. A love that's so, a heart that's so in love with the crucified Savior for you. A heart that powerfully receives his love in your heart so that you have a cross in your heart. You're ready, willing, and eager to lay your life down to promote the gospel. When that happens, 4,000 people in Midlothian are very likely to hear the gospel. 12,000 are likely to get an invitation. And the billions of people, 7 billion people around the world that don't yet know him savingly 
are much more likely to hear from us a saving, loving message of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, can you say with the apostle, may I never boast about anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this powerful gospel, the gospel of a crucified and risen Savior, a gospel of a Savior who's returning soon. We pray that we'll be taken up with this glory, that we'll be motivated by it in all that we do, and that through hearts that have become more deeply in love with you, you would use us to advance the gospel here and around the world. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.